3: Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank uh, each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable, and for the second hour of today's show, our sponsors are Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Dynacore Gold Mines, Golden Arrow Resources Corp., uh... miranda gold paramount gold and Silvercore, precipitate gold and renaissance gold well i'm really pleased to have with me for the first time eric coffin eric is the editor of h r a that's hard rock stands for hard rock analyst family of publications he's responsible for the financial analysis side of h r a and uh... eric has uh... a degree in corporate and investment finance and he has extensive experience in merger and acquisitions uh... and small company financings and promotion Uh, For many years, he tracked the uh, financial performance and funding of all exchange-listed Canadian mining companies and has helped with the formation of several successful exploration ventures. Eric uh, was one of the first analysts to point to the disastrous effects of gold hedging and gold loan capital financing in 1997. He also predicted the start of the current secular bull market in commodities based on the movement of the United States dollar in 2001 and the acceleration of growth in Asia and India. Uh, Eric can be reached at HRA, that's HRA at publishers-management, mgmt.com, uh, or his website, uh, is hraadvisory.com. Uh, Welcome, Eric, uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Really good to thanks, have you with thanks me. Thanks for having me,
4: Jay. I do, well, I do want uh, to mention to people out there that Jay and I have actually been friends for years. For we just e- we just keep crossing paths, but we didn't get on the radio show together. But we do know each other pretty well.
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's right. And I don't know why we haven't gotten you on before, um, but certainly, uh, you know, I've, I'm an admirer of your work. I subscribe to it and uh, enjoy it and find it uh, very useful. So I'm. I think it was—it's high time that we do have you on, and I've had some of some of our competitors I've had on, so uh, it's it's uh, more than way past due. Um, before we get started, just some of the nuts and bolts yep. here, the, the basics. How often do you publish, and what are the services you provide at HRA? There's
4: basically there's three levels: the, the basic services, a monthly newsletter, um, the HRA Journal. Uh, the second level up uh, is what's called the dispatch, and that's another monthly service. It basically comes up between the journals. Um, the, the purpose of the dispatch is basically just to give you more frequent and, and more updates and a bit more editorial content. So, And then the, the highest level, if you will, is the alert service. Um, and obviously, if you're getting the alert service, you're getting the other ones as well. So, the alert mm-hmm. service is, is basically news-driven. So. You might not see one for a month and a half, and then you might get four of them in three days. It just—it just depends sure. on what comes out sure. from companies.
3: Sure, and I guess that would probably be for people that are, uh, you know, the probably larger investors or people that are more short-term orientated and or need to trade uh, in and out of these markets. Some.
4: Yeah. yeah, there's more. There's probably more trading, straight up trading stuff, in the alert service, and and I mean, obviously. Uh, as as everybody knows, if they didn't know before they certainly know it now that's involved in these stocks. I mean these aren't these aren't low risk things. So I mean it's, it's not it's not widow and orphan material. So let's put it that way.
3: Well yeah let's put it that way for sure and boy is that lesson not being hammered home to us these days. <laughs> oh yeah. We, you know, we <laughs> lest we forget, those of us that have been around, you know, made many trips around the sun, have have seen this this play before. Yeah. Uh, we've seen this movie before, but somehow. Um you know, it doesn't take the pain away necessarily when it comes. But, but it is true that there, uh, you know, that you do learn over time that maybe sometimes you don't want to get too greedy. It takes the money off the table so that you're ready to take advantage of these kinds of markets right now. So, I mean, I, the Rick rules of this world, at least if they're doing what they're saying they're doing, then they are doing quite well by uh, sometimes going against the grain. And I know how hard it is. Um, Eric, you know, when we go to these conferences, and the stocks are up and everybody's really partying on and loving life and making a lot of money, uh, that's when you should be taking some off the table. It's not so easy to do. as just as right now, it's very difficult to get into some of these. Um, you know, I, I want to just to let our listeners know that y- you and your brother, who tragically passed away in the last year, David, uh, yeah. have had... A remarkable record. You've done very, very well. Could you give our listeners a little sense of, of how how well your picks have performed over the years?
4: Well, the the current sort of running, I keep sort of a running total on on closed positions. If mm-hmm. you will and that's things you know we told people to buy them, we told people to sell them. Um, I need to I need to update it again, but the most recent update was not that long ago, and all, all the closed positions from 2003 to 2013. Um, that's 87 closed positions. The average on those is 220. Um, nice. I would I would add the caveat to that that I have to update this, and I'm pretty sure that the next five or six I had aren't going to be aren't going to be green. So that number is yeah. going to come down to some. You know, it's probably going to come yeah. down to around 200 or so. Sure. Uh, those 87, about oh 25 of those were takeovers oh. by larger companies. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing we always look for, of course, is someone that can develop a resource that, that someone else is going to want to buy, since that's that's really the end game for for a lot of these guys. Um, is yeah. hopefully to be bought out. I mean, that hasn't happened much lately, but but uh, that's that's what most of them hope for at the end of the day. Is certainly, the cleanest out for everybody.
5: Yeah,
3: indeed, most of these uh, exploration companies are not don't have the skill sets that are required to to go into production. Uh, there's actually. At least one I know you follow on your list, uh though that has gone from exploration to production are doing quite well. Uh I think Silvercrest Mining, is that the one?
4: Yeah, Silvercrest Mines, um I've followed them since inception really, since they listed. And they're a good you know, they're a good example of, of how a good company like this works at a couple of different levels. Uh one is that when they first started up, they were in a couple of Central American companies that will remain unnamed and they ran into all kinds of political disaster there um, mm-hmm. but because they had a strong management group they were able to regroup and move into Mexico and uh, discover and develop a property called Santa Elena which went into production last year one of the things I always liked about these guys and I've gotten to know them very well over the years is, is it is a management group that actually had experience taking things through production and it is important you know I, I my, my suspicion is over the next two or three years they, we're going to see more companies trying this. I think we're going to see more guys going to something at a scale that a junior can conceivably do. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a bad thing, but but if you're following companies like that, it's pretty important to look at the management skill set because it's not, the skill set for finding deposits is not the same as the skill set for putting them in production successfully. Silvercrest is somewhat unusual in that they do actually have both those skill sets. Um, Eric Fear, who's the, who's the CEO now, but also the head exploration guy a Pretty talented geologist. He's done a very good job on the exploration side. But they've also got, you know, Barney Magnuson, who's the CFO, and, and Scott Drever, who's a chairman um, and president. He's Both of these guys have put mines in production on the operational and the finance side, and they did, they did a great job of it. So it's a company I still follow. It's up, you know, whatever, 400% or something from when I started talking about it. But I'm, I'm, it's a company I'm extremely comfortable with because I'm very, very comfortable with management.
3: Yeah, it's uh, a stock. has got about 107, 108 million shares outstanding, I believe, and it's uh, selling at about two, two and a half dollars, something like that, perhaps. In this yeah, and they've got a, they,
4: have, they have a very credible. They're doing heap leach, basically heap leach oxide extraction at San Elena. They will be putting a mill in. Um, you know, they're they're kind of talking about feasibility studies and stuff. But I know, I know they've already made the decision because I know they've already started ordering long timeline stuff. Uh, yeah. And again, it's a very credible plan. They're ramping down to the underground, which is higher grade than the than the oxide material. And they've been doing a bunch of drilling lately just to bring it up from the sort of the indicated category into the, into the measured category for the mining plan. And, and as part of that, one, they found some nice high-grade stuff. But they they've also found some new high-grade stuff. So it's probably going to get larger. Mm-hmm. Um, the intent was mainly to make it more a more robust resource, but it's looking like it's going to be a larger and and probably a higher-grade one. Plus, they have a very large sort of low-grade silver um, silver base metal resource on a project called La Jolla that they're drilling off. Um, That's a much different kind of beast. Uh, It would probably be a very large operation if and when uh, the trigger was pulled on it, but they're already up to like 150 million ounces of equivalent silver, and, they've, and oh. they've got a fair amount of room to make it larger. I mean, it's, it's going to be a very big deposit, but I'm they
3: done. That's uh, very interesting. For the sake of our uh, listeners, that symbol in Canada is SVL. That's uh, Sarah Victor Larry. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you can buy it down here in the States. I don't currently do own it, but a, They
4: do have a listing, and I, I honestly don't remember off the top of my head what what the symbol is, because, yeah. Um, yeah, but I well, think they're on the... They are listed
3: down there. I do know that. Yeah, and uh, well, you can buy most of the Canadian stocks down here. Not the most liquid market, a lot of times. But if they're primary, uh, if the primary exchange is in Canada, where I think the regulations in this industry are second to none, and I'm not a big proponent of regulations, as people on this show know, I'm a, a laissez-faire, free market guy. But I must say that in Canada, I think they've done a remarkably good job uh, and uh, of regulations, which leads me to sort of a, a theoretical question for you Eric I yeah. you know we've we've been through and I want to ask you how you would compare this this current downturn with some of the other difficult ones and and the brex situation uh, life, life was tough after brex for a long time but oh, yeah. brex brought with it a lot of regulations the 43101 uh regulation came out of that um, are, i'm i'm assuming you believe we're much better off for having 43101 than than before the industry uh, well, I,
4: I think we are. I mean, I think it gives investors a lot of comfort, which is, you know, in and of itself, uh, a good enough reason to do it. Uh, the The only the only issue that I have with forty three one oh one one hundred one is that once that came in, um, it became sort of a given that once someone got enough drill holes or whatever in, into a into a project, that it was just it was understood that they would go and, and do a resource estimate. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the, the the issue I have with it is that I find a lot of companies perhaps doing these studies earlier than they really should because they're getting mm-hmm. told to do them. I mean, institutional investors are always saying like, you know, we can't we can't put money into anything unless we've got a 482-101 resource. So these guys rush out and do these resources too early, uh, in my opinion, sometimes when they should really be waiting until they until they really get their arms around the thing. Because so I they, find that the market. Well, unless unless somebody does an updated resource where there's truly an enormous growth in the resource, I find once a number's out there, it kind of it kind of gets set in stone almost, and and people go, okay, the resource is X, because that was a yeah. first forty three one hundred one, even if that's only ten percent of what they're drilling off. So yeah. I do think sometimes they get done a little bit too early, um, and then and there are, I mean, some of them, you know, the truth of the matter is, I guess. If your end game is to try to sell something to a major, um, certainly majors might tell you, "Well, we need a 43101 resource." But I mean, a lot of the times, uh, people should understand uh, funds and majors saying that it's really kind of a dodge uh, to the company. That's kind of a way to just kind of slough a junior off and, and not deal with it because any any major that isn't run by a complete idiot that's going to be making a serious takeover offer. They're running yeah. those numbers themselves anyway.
3: Absolutely.
4: Um, and they don't they don't give a, they don't they couldn't care less what for the forty three one oh one says. So they're gonna have their own numbers based on their own parameters of what they think it's gonna cost to mine in that part of the world and what they think the hurdles are and whether or not it matches up to the 43101's one's immaterial to them, they're gonna use their internal number. I mean I can remember I'll give you a really good example. Um, I'm not saying that this example fits everybody, but uh, company Gold, Virginia Gold that we've followed forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Used to be called Virginia Mines before there was a takeover by Goldcorp. Goldcorp took them over for the Elgin r project in Northern Quebec, which is a fantastic gold discovery that they made. And I can remember talking to uh, Andre Gaumont and Paul Archer, the the president of VP Exploration. And this was not long after forty three one one came in force, and and you know Dave and I were looking at it and kind of going like, this thing's obviously going to get bigger, like. I mean, they're mm-hmm. going to throw a number out there right away. And I talked to Andre and I said, So, are you putting out a 43101? And he looked at me like I was completely out of my mind. And he just said, yeah. you crazy? There's no way I'm putting out a 43101. Uh-huh. And he said, Yeah, I've got all these fun guys screaming for it. But he said, I know who's looking at this thing. I know uh-huh. who's probably going to bid on it. They couldn't care yeah. less what some engineers, what some outside engineers, says the a, has a resources. They're, they're, uh-huh. they're running their own numbers. Every time I put out drill holes, I put out all the information that these guys need to put it right into their software. They're all they're all running simulations on it. They all know what they think the thing is. I'm not going to screw it up by putting on a 43101 number with when I when I know I haven't even drilled two thirds of it yet.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, for sure, and I I, w- I wonder also though, uh, Eric, if sometimes it doesn't help. Uh, the 43101 keeps certain people away uh, from a project until those numbers come out, and people oh, who no, are more astute no at understanding the geology and the and the statistic uh, statistical analysis of drill holes might not have an advantage then over the market Then might that be another thing that's not so good about 42101
4: well it's true and and I and I and frankly the you know obviously I hope that you know call it spidey sense or whatever you want to call it that you know looking at looking at a set of results from a project that I, that I can see the scope for a resource that the, the The market hasn't appreciated yet. A a market, a market inefficiency, if you will. Yes, because it does keep certain people away. I mean, certain funds, and I'm not, you know, I'm not dissing these funds. It's simply the way that their constitution is written. They are not allowed to buy shares in a company unless it has an identified resource. That's just that's what it is. That's how it's defined. So, it's you know, there's probably cases where they want to, but they just they can't. Right. Um, So you do you can get market inefficiencies because because large institutional shareholders just can't pull the trigger until somebody's generated that number. And that is part of the reason why you, you often see companies probably doing them earlier than they really want to, but they know they've got to have some kind of resource to get these guys to be able to do anything at all.
3: Yeah. So a lot of these funds might have somebody, a technical person uh, or more than one that really understand the numbers, but just because they're not allowed, the constitution doesn't allow them to. Uh, but in any event, uh, I think and my own belief is that um I think it's good legislation. If you're gonna have legislation and, and on, and human beings being what they are, uh, we saw a lot of dirty, rotten stuff in the past. And I, and by the way, I wanna yep. tell my listeners that, uh, you know, in the old days, I remember when Vancouver had such a bad name, but yep. compared to what goes on down here in the unregulated markets, it's not any worse if anything it's it's as dirty down here as it is as it ever was up there so in any event the point that I was would like to make to my listeners is that I'll buy stocks and do buy stocks Canadian listed stocks over the counter even if they're not listed down here if they are listed in Canada that's my point
4: yeah well and, and the thing too is the thing with 43101 is that it brought in a number of things and the, the resource estimate is what everybody recognizes because they get you know they get called the 43101. Uh, estimate, but the other thing that it brought in that's arguably even more important, really, is is what's called the the QP regulations. The QP is a qualified person. Any any mm-hmm. junior resource issue has to have someone who is the qualified person, and, and by definition, that you know that's going to be like a geologist. There's got to be someone approved by the exchanges having the requisite you know education and background. Sure, and basically sure. that person's on the hook. They are taking liability for what is in news releases. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very personal liability like the exchange can go after that person personally and they do uh, mm-hmm. and that's really <laughs> that's really tighten things up as you can imagine sure because um, of it, course if you're putting out any kind of news release that has any kind of exploration results in it there has to be a QP there has to be somewhere and there there's going to be a sentence saying Joe blow the qualified person for the company has read and approved the the, right. the content of this release, like that has to be in there. That person has to do that. And if they don't like something, the news release doesn't go out. And, and, and one of the reasons why you saw things, like especially about two years ago when, when the UConn was going crazy and things were really, really busy and the labs were really backed up, people were pulling their hair out because it was taking so long to get results out. And part of the reason for that was because you had QPs doing statistical analysis on all of these get pouring out of these labs. And because the labs are so busy... You know, they were, they were having issues every now and again where, you know, one of the analysis didn't go the way it should. Well, that, that QP Mm -hmm. would just stop things in their tracks and it would all go back to the lab to be rerun. So that's part of the reason why results are so slow. And most people don't even realize that was happening because it's not a public thing. It's for the news release. But that's also, that's a big part of the 43101 regulations is that QP stuff, which they don't have in the U.S. I mean, frankly, I see stuff in news releases on, Golden Board companies, where I'm just like, what? Yeah, you just got to read it and shake your head and go, seriously? Yeah,
3: yeah was really? <laughs> yeah, no, I I agree, and I, I think that's why you know from my point of view, and I well, I mean, there's a reason. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why the Canadian mining industry is uh, is so dominant globally, uh, but certainly regulation uh, has part of, has something to do with that. I think. Uh, yeah, but and in any event, and they're
4: internationals. Yeah.
3: Yeah, in any event, I w- I'd like you to compare. So we're we're in a, I think to be polite, a, a soft patch right now in our <laughs> in our sector yeah. in our industry. That's probably putting it mildly. But how yeah. would you compare this with, let's say, you know two thousand two eight two thousand two oh, you know the two thousand eight nine was not a picnic. That was, pr- but it was fast and it was over with quickly, wasn't it? But how would you compare yeah. this one with that? Let's say the Asian crisis and the post uh event.
4: Okay, well, I, you know, I, I would say right now, because so, since we're, we're, essentially we're two years into this, really, since, since the, the venture market, if you will, topped out, And mm-hmm. uh, it's so, it's already looking more like, you know, post-Asian crisis slash BRIAC than it is like 2009, unfortunately. Uh, mm-hmm. the thing with 2009 was it was really ugly, really fast, but going into that, a lot of companies were, were quite cashed up, uh, um, and also because of the knock-on effects and people being really worried about the financial sector, after it finished getting blown out along with, you know, every other asset when the market dived, gold started making a comeback pretty rapidly, like a big comeback. That obviously helped a lot. Plus you, you still had a large number of companies that were pretty well financed. And I remember David and I sitting down and spending like two months in early 2009 because we got it into our heads that things were going to bounce even though everybody really thought we were crazy. And mm-hmm. we went looking for companies that had basically stuff that was ready to drill that looked like it really had a, you know, it looked like it was really obvious. Like like when these guys drill this thing, they're going to get a bunch of good drill holes. Uh-huh. And, they, and they had the money to drill. <laughs> uh, and there were a number of those, and we did quite well on a number of them. The difference this time around, it's a little more like, uh, you know, the late 90s, unfortunately, because it's dragged on longer. Uh, you don't have, you're not getting a big assist from gold right now. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to cry into your pillow and build $1,600, but still, you know, people, people are uncomfortable about where the gold price is headed, so you don't have that tailwind. Plus, since this has gone on for two years, there's a lot more companies that just are simply not in a position to generate strong newsflow. They, they don't have the money. Yeah. Um, yeah in that sense, it's similar to post-Brex Asian crisis, but it's not similar in the sense that we're we're not in a situation where we're at the tail end of a long commodity bear market. I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. commodity prices have pulled back a little, but but a little. You know, I mean, copper is three fifty. You know, zinc ninety five cents, lead's almost mm-hmm. a buck. I'm trading in 45 45. I mean, none of these. You know, silver is twenty nine bucks. I mean, it's not like the it's not like these things are in the dumps. Right. Uh, and a lot of large mining companies, although many of them have bitten the bullet and done some large write offs on projects. You know, by and large, most of those companies are making quite a bit of money, and they have quite a bit of money. It's kind of a real rich and poor thing where the, the guys that are in tough are the juniors. And, and I think, you know, in my experience, what turns a market like this around is discoveries. But of course, for discoveries to happen, someone's got to be able to afford to drill something. And there, there are some companies out there that can, but it's not that long a list. I mean, you're, you're right. There's a lot of companies in trouble, and I'm not sure there's an easy way out for a lot of those guys.
3: No, I would think that a lot of them, unless we get some sort of a turnaround fairly quickly, that there's going to be a lot of dead bodies up there in Vancouver, uh, so to speak. Uh, oh yeah, a lot, a lot of, of
4: companies with like, well, I mean John Kaiser, who you know, good friend of both of us, mm-hmm. and he and I were talking about this not that long ago, and I, and he runs these numbers, and the number of companies that have less than like two hundred thousand dollars on hand is just spooky. Uh, like it's it's like six seven hundred. I mean, it's, it's not pretty.
3: Yeah, and, you know, and these companies have share prices that are below 10 cents and in many cases below a nickel. So it's, uh, it's, it's bad times. It's tough times. But here's the thing, uh, Eric, I like the companies that have, that are, that are, you know, like your Silvercrest mines, um, companies that are new producers, young producers that, that have the ability to grow their earnings, uh, mm-hmm. and companies that can survive are going to go out and buy up some of these companies with lots of data. Lots of drill hole data and, and a lot of, uh, geological information that they can use in the future, right? So, it yeah. seems to me it's the best of both worlds. It's the best of all worlds. It's the best, it's the best of worlds for companies that have, that are strong financially, have cash flow, or even if they don't, if they've got deep pockets and have a lot of resources. And it's the worst of, of all worlds for companies that have spent millions of dollars putting holes in the ground and all they have to show for it is data that the market doesn't recognize. So, so are you focused, um, more i mean you are really about exploration to a great extent I, I am
4: although i mean i am looking at, at you know recent you know recent or or soon to be producers i mean mm-hmm. I, I would like to i would like to add you know two or three more silver crests to the list so I'm, I'm actually doing due diligence on a number of those right now mm-hmm. but i've also focused on you know w- within the list and, and a couple of additions to the list i guess sort of two two sorts of companies um one is companies that do in fact have a fair amount of cash. Um, there's four or five companies I've been following fairly closely that are all trading below cash value that have pretty good looking expiration targets. They're, they're just bringing them along now so they'll be, they'll be ready to drill in a month or two in most cases. Uh, but they're all companies where even after they do that drilling they're still gonna have a bunch of money left. So they mm-hmm. just, you know, and money, let's face it, money's the best plan B. Uh, especially in a market like this, because you, oh, yeah. you are, because you're very right. You're in a market where, where prices for for this sort of stuff are dropping, uh, rapidly, <laughs> and you know there's deals to be done, and you're and you are starting to see them. Um, in terms of perhaps light at the end of the tunnel, I can tell you. I mean, I can't name names because it's all private, but I've been approached by a couple of groups that aren't really mining. They're resource groups, but they're not mining groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, very large ones. That have that have asked me to give them a few names uh, because they're in the market to go and take a bunch of companies private mm-hmm. and and clean things up and be ready for the next go around mm-hmm. when things start picking up again. Um, and and this is very this is what I would classify as very smart money. So you know mm-hmm. the, the really smart money is actually out there shopping right now. The, yeah. Unfortunately, the the downside of being. Attracted by really smart money, is they tend not to pay, overpay for things, <laughs> so it's it's not like they're planning <laughs> to do anybody any favors, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. But but you will see, I think you'll, I think people will be surprised at some of the companies that they see taken out in the next few months. There'll be ones where guys will be scratching their heads going, like, well, yeah, but how come that one? Because it's just an expiration deal. But it's because, yeah, you know, there's companies with really strong project sets and and strong technical management that just are going nowhere in this market. with the guys are looking at, saying, I'm just going to take the whole thing out. Like, just,
3: yeah. Not, going nowhere, not necessarily for any any fault of their own or any lack of uh, of of skills in, in the exploration sector, but just because that's the way the markets are now. Yeah, um, and I
4: and I have been trying to find companies that are in a position to generate news because the reality is when and when this you know, this market will turn at some point. I mean, you can't produce any of this stuff for nothing. None of it's easy to find. I mean, gold isn't sixteen hundred dollars. Just because there's guys putting it under their mattress at sixteen hundred dollars, because it's hard to find and expensive to mine. I mean, it's not something that's going to be pouring out of the sky just because of the current price. Um, the supply constraints are, are quite real, so you will see a turn in this stuff. And I'm, I'm looking for guys that, when that turn starts, they're kind of ready to, you know, they're ready to go, if you will.
3: Sure. Yeah, and I think there's, there's, I mean, we've been quite a while in this bull market. Uh, you know, this is a, a soft patch, as I say, a, a tough time during this sec, what I think is a, a secular bull market. And there's been an awful lot of development, an awful lot of data, an awful lot of projects, a number of projects that are uh, a growing number of junior producers and smaller guys too. So there seems to be a lot of opportunities, Eric. I, I noticed that my engineer is telling me you have a minute left. So I'm, okay. uh, I'm wondering if you could come back after the break and talk for another sure. 10 minutes or so could you all right so I I just uh, before uh, we go to break though I want to just pose one one question to you uh, and then we'll pick up on it on the other side of the break but you talked I know in a recent newsletter about the rising cost this is certainly something that I have noticed too and after Lehman Brothers we saw but Bob Hoy, and he talked was earlier on our show today, again, talked about the real price of gold rising because gold went up relative to a basket of commodities that he follows. It went up relative to a basket of the Rogers well, the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, which I look at. And, uh, and with that, we saw the major oh. mining companies' profits surging, going up very dramatically. However... Uh, over the last eighteen months to two years those uh, earnings have come back and the analysts are scaling back their projected earnings uh, very dramatically quite dramatically and you mention uh... in uh... in your most recent letter you talk you touch on this issue of rising costs costs have been going up for gold producers i suppose for copper producers that's as well the case uh... too so when we come back after the break i'd like to ask you to address uh... the cost issue and and what what's going into that why uh, why our gold mining profits are still very strong. I track them uh, from the big guys and they're doing quite well, but uh, we're seeing a decline in earnings and then whether or not uh, uh, we might see a turnaround sometime in the near future. So uh, uh, if we can pick up on that when we come back. Folks, don't go away. We're going to take a, a commercial break and when we come back we'll uh, we'll talk more to Eric Coffin. Don't go away.
1: Investors deserve to start seeing greater returns, period. Creating shareholder value requires vision and a disciplined, fiscally responsible style. At Dynacor Gold Mines, we are proving how to fuel growth without shareholder dilution. Cash flow and liquidity levels are as robust as the company has seen throughout its history. Dynacor is a low-risk public company generating actual profits coupled with real shareholder value. Learn more at DynacorGold.com or follow us on Twitter at Dynacor
5: Gold. Windfall profits happen frequently in gold exploration stocks, but the risk of losses are also common. Miranda Gold enhances prospects of shareholder gains by combining the intellectual capital of geologists, mine Ken Cunningham and Joe Herbert with other people's hard dollars in search for elephant-sized gold deposits in politically safe places like Nevada and Columbia. That keeps shareholder dilution to a minimum, so when discoveries are made, major gains are possible. For more, go to MirandaGold.com.
0: Precipitate Gold is focused on exploring and developing its gold properties in the Dominican Republic in Mexico. Precipitate's management team has been responsible for numerous takeovers. With valuations exceeding $280 million, with a successful team and a growing portfolio of quality gold assets, including an attractive concession adjacent to GoldQuest's holdings in the Dominican Republic, the company is well positioned for growth in 2013. For more information, please visit www.precipitategold.com
3: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times, and I'm really pleased that uh, Eric Coffin could stick around a, a few more minutes with us here. Uh, Eric, when we went to break, we started, I uh, was asking you about costs. You mentioned yeah. in a recent letter that the cost of, I think, in the gold sector, I think it's probably true in all the sectors, uh, gold is what I follow most closely, but the gold, the cost of producing gold is going up a lot. Would you like to give our listeners some sense of why that's true?
4: Yeah, you know, when you look at, when you look at project costs, and you know, by that I mean the cost to put a mine in production. The the level of inflation in the mining sector is it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's it's way higher than it's about any other industry. Uh, you know, it was probably from 2004 to say 2010, 2012. Even it was probably running in the order of 15 percent, as opposed to a, an underlying one that was more like two or three percent. And there's a couple of reasons for it. One is you are dealing The bigger a mine gets, and and the majors for a long time, up until very recently, their preference was very much very large, low-grade, scalable operations. And by that I mean operations where you could, once you had it built, you could relatively easily go from 100,000 tons a day to 200 to 300,000 tons a day that they could support those kind of production rates. Um, And that meant a lot of very specialized equipment with very long lead times. And, and really, I think the suppliers the suppliers were jacking prices up because of that. But I also think you've got a situation where most of these big deposits, you're dealing with building a lot of infrastructure. So you're not just building; you're not just digging a hole in the ground. You're mm-hmm. you're building the mill. You're putting in the road. You're putting in the power lines. You're putting in water supply. The prices of all those things went through the roof. Wages went through the roof. I mean, everything did. And this is something that I think really needs to be addressed, and, and I think is going to be addressed over the next. 12 to 18 months, I think you're going to see this inflational rate slow right down and hopefully even reverse because it's, it's totally out of control and this has created a lot of problems. Um, when when we were off air, you mentioned a comment that, that our mutual friend, Brent Cook made and that's, again, that's a big part of it. The grade has dropped over the last 10 years. These things aren't getting easier to find. And of course, if you've got to take two tons out of the ground to get a gram of gold instead of one, you've effectively just doubled your production costs. That was part of my comment earlier about, you know, people at, I can remember in 2009, for instance, being in a conference in Chicago and all the guys on, on, I was the only guy that's actually had any experience in the mining business, but it was a commodity thing. All the other guys were like perma bears and they were all, they were all just kind of laughing at me because I was telling them that copper, the, the copper price are down, and they were going, oh, you're crazy. Look at the charts. It's going to go back to 60 cents, whatever. And I was like, okay, guys, none of you apparently know anything about the mining business. You cannot get the mining sector to give you 15 million tons of copper a year at 60 cents. That ain't going to happen because right now it's costing them about a buck fifty a pound to do it. So that's just not going to happen.
3: Yeah. So, uh, so, so we've had, so these are some of the cost factors. And what, how do you think the mining companies, uh, are addressing? I mean, I'm hearing talk about, you know, from the big guys that maybe they're going more, they're looking more carefully at grade, grade control or just, just not mining the, the lower grade stuff.
4: That's that's what I've heard. I mean, I've talked to guys at several majors, um, and and in the case of one of them, a good friend of mine, he's he's the guy that kind of makes the buying decisions, if you will. And he basically his comment to me was, "Don't show me twenty million ounces on top of the Andes. That's 0.5 grams. That, <laughs> yes, in, yes, in theory it'll have a big net present value if I build this giant mine that costs eight billion dollars. Show mm-hmm. me two million ounces. I'm quite fine with underground because there's less permitting hassles because it's not a big ugly hole." Where the grades high enough that I can generate a couple hundred thousand ounces a year at five hundred dollars cash cost, you said I'd buy that in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So, and and I think what you're going to see, there's been a lot of a lot of talk in the last couple of weeks, especially about um, quote unquote right-sizing these companies, and by that they mean splitting them into probably geographic units. And the Mm -hmm. part of the logic behind that is if you're a Newmont or a Barrick or an Anglo. Growing your production 10 or 15% a year is, is really, really, really hard. Sure. I mean, you talking about adding a couple million ounces a year to do that. It's, it, it almost behooves you to go after these giant monstrosities because that's the only thing where you can add half a million ounces in one mine. You split them in the geographic units or something like that where you're, where you're growing from, say, two or three million ounces a year. It's a much more manageable thing. And I, and I think the smaller, higher-grade deposits that are, you know, where the capex isn't Half as much, it's like one tenth as much or one twentieth as much as a mm-hmm. giant Vemis. I think those are going to come back into vogue. I mean, I can, I can, I, I can kind of hear the ghost of my brother laughing because he was always, you know, we went through this cycle once before, and I remember him back there saying, you know, the problem with all these guys analyzing these companies is they, they don't understand you can't stop an open pit, and, and what he meant by that was if you get this big cohesive deposit that's half a gram. If mm-hmm. your costs get to the point or the price drops to the point where it's not economic, you're screwed, basically. You're, yeah. you're screwed. Like, you can't do anything about it. You're done. If right. you're mining something underground in 10 or 15 different stopes and the prices drop, you basically, you don't really want to do it, but you can go after the high grade and you can actually adjust your, your operating costs with relative ease because it's that kind of deposit. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're going to see more of the mining companies going back to that sort of deposit type where they can control the costs more.
3: Yeah, I think there's no question about that. It's, it's, it has to happen unless we see a reversal somehow. You know, you, you mentioned maybe the cost will come down. Maybe there will be a reversal. We certainly saw it, uh, after Lehman Brothers. That's when I saw the, you know, the cost of everything really sort of drop and that, that I think helped to pave the way for the booming, uh, profits in the gold sector, but, of course, that brings uh, other kinds of pains with it as well when we go through one well, of those and, things. Nobody- and I think
4: we'll see that again, too. I mean, part of the part of the side effect of, you know, like we started at, at the start here talking about all these companies that had almost no money left. I mean, there's a whole bunch of geologists, geophysicists, you name it, being released. I mean, I, I think you're going to see costs of that sort are are going to drop in the next little while. I think that is definitely going to happen
3: yeah i know i you know i know that uh geologists that were working you know not for companies but uh for hire by the day or whatever uh were those those wages can are those fees can change quite a bit depending on market conditions and i saw i've seen both uh extremes uh, i eric i have to ask you a question about yeah. p e a s yeah. Uh, we've had lots, of, and you wrote about this in your recent letter too. I think you, you've looked at some 100 PEAs. There was one company here that's been a sponsor in this show. We've had them on. They recently came out with a PEA, uh, and the stock is selling at about five percent of the discounted present value of the stock. Of course, the stock yeah. is selling at a at a nickel a share. They had to have a half a half a billion dollar uh, capex to put it into production, yeah. but. You know, why is there such a disconnect between what the market is paying for these things and what the PEAs are saying they're worth? Are the PEAs not worth the paper they're written on? Are the PEAs, are the people that are doing the PEAs realizing who's paying them and they're giving them the news that the companies want to hear? Or what's the story?
4: There might be a little bit of that. I mean, PEAs do have a, a relatively large error factor, that, and I don't mean that to diss the guys doing them. It's just the nature of, of PEAs. They're, Right, there, you know, there's a lot that doesn't go into them. I mean, doing a full feasibility study costs millions and millions of dollars. Sure, um, and PEAs basically, you're supposed. The idea behind a PEA is that's to decide whether you should bother doing a feasibility study. So mm-hmm. they're much cheaper exercise, and the cost is less rigorous. And, and usually, it will say in them it's like plus minus twenty percent. Um, that's usually the error range they use. I, I think part of the reason why you're seeing a problem is simply that is that they haven't worked. And by that I mean, when people first started putting PAs out, um, you know, they, the shareholders would hope to see a major come knock on the door the next day saying, well, I see you got a, you know, half billion dollar NPV. How about we cut your check for 350 and everybody's happy? Yeah. Um, that actually happened a, a few times, but there's been this huge, I mean, I was shocked when I did this search, when I found out how many of them that were had come out in the last year. Um, and of course in most cases they haven't ended in that scenario and, and shareholders, when they don't see something happen like right away. They, they tend to basically get disheartened and start selling. And the problem you get with PEAs, especially in a, especially in a bear market like this, is you've got this huge disconnect. You've got a company with a, say a $10 million market cap, puts out a PEA that says their capex is half a billion dollars. Yeah. You know, effectively what that company is saying is we can't do this. Yeah. Um, That's not the intent of the PEA. But what the PEA is really saying is we can't do this. There is no way to get from A to B here. We have a 10 billion, 10 million dollar market cap, and we need another, we need 50 times our market cap to build this thing. Best case scenario, even if we found a, you know, a bank that was owned by our mother-in-law that was going to lend us 350 million, we still have to raise the other 150, which means we're going to dilute all of you by 1500 percent. Yeah. from A to B. Right, and you know, is there an easy way out of this? I, I don't think so for a lot of them. I think, I think what will happen with a bunch of them is they will get taken out. They'll get mm-hmm. taken out at prices that don't make any of us happy as shareholders, and some of them will. You know what I what I'm expecting to see a lot of is revised PEAs, where, where guys that have gone the route that they thought majors wanted, which was show me this big giant low grade thing that I can put this humongous mine on, go back to it and say, well, okay, out of the six million ounces here, is there a million ounces we can go after it? Say. Two or three thousand tons a day, where we can put this thing in production for Mm -hmm. eighty million instead of five hundred million, and then maybe you know, maybe we can find a path to production here. Um, Mm -hmm. Because that's that's what that's the problem is these guys are putting these things out, and the capex is so much bigger than their market value. There's just there's no way to get from A to B.
3: Right. Well, Eric, you know, it seems to me most of the juniors are involved more in exploring for for gold. Uh, as opposed to these big, bigger projects, you know, like the copper and the base metal projects and so forth, yeah. uh, is that just because, in general, in theory, you, you can do stuff? in I mean, you can have a smaller scale operation in gold that should be financeable by by smaller companies. I mean, in normal times.
4: And then it's partially that. I mean, heap leach in particular. Although I think you know you can you can do uh, you can do a heap leach oxide operation on copper. I mean, I think what had people shy away from it is. One, I I think the market's a little more nervous about base metals and and generally speaking for a a given discovery size, say, you know, just to use around numbers, a billion dollars worth of metal, the market Mm -hmm. simply gives you a lot less credit for base metals than it does for for precious metals. Mm -hmm. So a lot of guys just shied away from that because they just said, well, if I'm going to find a billion dollars worth of metal, the market will give me a hundred million for it if it's gold and it'll give me forty million for it if it's copper, so I'm not going to bother looking for copper. You know, that's another thing that where I think you'll see some, where I think you'll see some turn. I mean, this stuff's all, this stuff all goes in cycles, and I think you'll see some of these. You know, if copper holds up, I mean, personally, I won't be too shocked to see copper drop below three bucks. But that's still a very high price historically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think there's any number of projects that you get very strong economic numbers out of that, that don't have to be giant. I mean, you can you can start with higher grade copper deposits where. You're
3: building a hundred million dollar mine rather than a billion dollar mine, same as you do with gold. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, uh, gold is uh, you know primarily what I what I look at for various reasons. But um, I I have to ask you about that. You follow other things as well, and we uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left here yet. But um, I know that you know Bob Bishop, who handed off his letter when he retired to you and your brother David. uh, In speaking to him, he was quite big on. uh, not that long ago on graphite. any idea any thoughts about graphite? Is that something that you think uh, uh, might make some sense?
4: Yeah, I am looking at a few I am looking at a few graphite deals. I mean it was one of those things that kind of got away from us in the sense that when it took off it took off so fast that yeah, a lot of the things we like just looked expensive right away, really. Uh, like anything else, those things that come back. although I must say graphite good graphite companies seem to be trading better than most things these days which is yeah. part of the reason why I'm interested in them. Yeah. Graphite yeah, yeah. I like because it's a big market. Um, Dave and I never really got into the rare earth stuff too much, partially because we had a lot of um, private company experience with industrial minerals where there are small, specialized markets, way where earths are. And mm-hmm. We were just concerned about entering a market that small. is yes. isn't yes. room for many entrants, but graphite's a pretty large market, actually, so there is actually room for for new ones. Um there's you know there's two or three companies I'm looking at that have very high quality deposits. I mean one of them in Quebec, uh one of them in Ontario. And and the nice thing about a couple of these things too is that the, they happen to be in places where the logistics are, are really good. I mean oh. but they're they're not in places where you're on top of a 15,000 foot peak in the Andes. I mean they're Mm-hmm. You can drive to the thing from the Toronto airport in three hours. I mean,
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> on, yeah,
4: on a real road. <laughs>
3: well, that that's and, very important. And, and park the uh, rental
4: car right next to it. I mean, that, yeah, yeah. I kind of like that too.
3: <laughs> well, that's that's uh, not only is that something to like; it's something to make a project economic. Nothing. Uh, I mean, one of the most important issues that I think novice investors need to be aware of is uh, is the uh, infrastructure and all that. Eric, Absolutely. my engineer is telling me we're out of time. Unfortunately, I had... Lots more to ask you. Uh, a bunch of names that I wanted to throw at you. Maybe okay. we can have you, if you're willing to come back again sure. sometime in the near future, talk about some more companies um, and some names. And I uh, really thank you very much for the education you've provided for me for and our, me our listeners today. Uh, really good to have you. So we'll look forward to talking to you sometime in the near future. Thanks very thank much. You. Be glad to be back. Thank you, Eric. Thank you very much. Well, folks, we do have to take a break. And when we come back, I will talk. Uh, A little bit about today's show overall, just summarizing it, and also about next week's guests. So don't go away. I'll be right back.
1: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over 15 million dollars on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure, a low cash burn rate, and holds 43 million dollars in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery
5: gold is a u.s.-based exploration company with multi-million ounce advanced stage gold and silver projects in the mining friendly jurisdictions of nevada and northern mexico backed by a strategic investor and a strong balance sheet an experienced management team has completed preliminary economic assessments on both projects showing robust economics and immense potential for increasing ounces and mine life for more information go to paramountgold.com or follow on twitter pzg news
1: voice america business network the bottom line in business.
3: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, just uh, with some thoughts about today's show, uh, sort of summarizing what we talked about today. Uh, first, uh, it was really good to have Bob Hoy back with us uh, again to sort of remind us uh, that we are in this huge deleveraging uh, period of time in which the total debt to GDP is uh, is very, very high, historically high, and that this is one of the major uh, debt uh, excessive debt situations and debt deleveraging situations in the last 300 years or so. And that in this kind of environment, as the deleveraging process continues on, the confidence in the currency and in the banking system uh, becomes shaky. And we certainly have seen this in the last few days in Cyprus. We've seen it in Europe. We saw it in the United States following the 2008-2009 uh, post-Lehman Brothers era, which really kicked off the uh, deleveraging aspect uh, in the United States. So the main point here is that we are in a secular bull market for gold. I think we're, I believe we're coming out of a cyclical bear within that secular bull. Uh, and uh, today, notwithstanding a weaker gold market, but um, if you believe, as I do, that things are not all right. That the policies uh, that have been instituted uh, are not going to fix things long term, but in fact make them worse. Uh, and that, however, no matter what policymakers do, the markets ov- uh, ultimately overcome and overtake uh, policies. Then uh, you know, gold wins in the long run, and that's what Hoy is saying. And you know, I watched this, uh, this was Bob's thesis before Lehman Brothers, and I started tracking gold relative to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Bob Hoy has his own proprietary basket of commodities that he uses, but I started tracking gold relative to the Rogers Fund, and lo and behold, uh, right after Lehman Brothers, uh, the purchasing power of gold skyrocketed. It went from 17.5% of the Rogers fund to over 44%, got up as high as 49% when the European crisis erupted, uh, has come back down to about 43 or 44% now. Uh, and so we've had a trailing off in the last year and a half, two years, and with that the gold prices, the gold mining share prices have come off very considerably as well. I think reflecting some of the things that Eric Coffin just talked about, the rising cost uh, in the gold mining sector that has really trim the profits and I'm looking at the uh, latest uh, uh, projections from the mining analysts that cover the big the big companies and they have all come off very considerably as well uh, and so uh, however uh, Bob mentioned that uh, you know his work is suggesting that we're at the point in time now when it looks as though the real price of gold is likely to rise relative to commodities and relative to the uh, equity prices once again well we'll see if Bob is right, but he does have a pretty darn good track record in terms of calling major turns in the past. Certainly did appreciate having Dr. Chris, uh, Chris Martinson with us for the first time. I think, uh, refreshingly he provides some hope, some ideas that in fact, uh, uh, it's possible uh, that we can live within within our means, and uh, in some ways enrich our life, our lives. Uh, I, I think it certainly is a fallacy that we uh, become happier the more stuff we have around us. I think uh, our quest for finding happiness through Materialism is, uh, is, is a losing proposition longer term. I have no doubt about that personally. And yet it's so easy to get caught up in that game. That's, uh, what we have. The stimulus all around us is to get us to buy things. I mean, when you think about it, that's what Keynesian economics is about. Creating animal spirits, uh, creating the desire to buy things and to the demand side of the economy rather than the supply side of the economy, which is what, you know, one of the reasons I think that we're in big trouble is, uh, Keynesian economic theory theory. Uh, I think there's some aspects of it that I would agree with and certainly uh, are consistent with human behavior. For example, uh, if we put the money in the hands of the masses, the lower income people, they would spend it. I have no doubt about that. Uh, and uh, But on the other hand, we have to have savings in the economy. That, that is clear to me and that is what uh, current policies are rejecting. But uh, As David Stockman said, we are in the process of destroying capitalism from the inside out by holding interest rates to zero. Uh, discouraging and making impossible savings and causing people to eat their seed capital uh, and uh, it's causing a lot of trouble I believe in uh... in our country well uh... that uh... we're just uh... out of time now i'm told I have thirty seconds left to tell you that next week we're going to have Dmitry Orlov with me had it, uh, expected to have um and hope to have jim sinclair uh... if we can get him here we really would like to have jim here to talk about his views on the gold market i want to thank uh... tacy trump my producer and matt Widener, uh... my engineer for making this show logistically possible and thanks to each of you for listening until next week goodbye and god's blessings to you